Welcome to the Founder to Mentor podcast. My name is Mike Fada. I'm an entrepreneur with multiple nine-figure exits and a passion for health and mentorship. Join me on a journey where I connect with world-class founder mentors to inspire your personal and professional growth. Let's jump into it. Welcome, everybody. My name is Mike Fada. I'm uh, honored tonight to host a friend, my friend Ian Walker, founder of Left Coast Naturals and Hippie Snacks. Uh, for all of you joining for the first time, uh, welcome. And for those returning again, thank you for your support of these uh, founder sessions. Now, this uh, this event is being hosted under the Venture Park Club, which I and several other friends launched with Arlene Dickinson. Uh, you can follow the club if you're not uh, by clicking the little greenhouse uh, and join. Stay up to date on some of our on our some of our events. Uh, the room flow after our intros, I'm going to get Ian's thoughts on some topics, and then we're going to be inviting founders up to ask Ian or I a question. If you're a natural product founder or a friend and have a question, you'll be have a chance to raise your hand, come up on stage, and ask it. This is a learning and networking event. Uh, normally, this room uh, has other founders, retailers, distributors, and, and some media. So check out people's profiles, connect with them, and see if we can help each other out. Um, for those that don't know me and my journey, I grew up poor with a single mom, uh, left school at 13 to start working. I wasn't educated about health when I was young and uh, fell prey to the fast food movement and weighed uh, 300 pounds uh, at 18 years old. Um, that's when I started my my health journey and lost over 100 pounds, uh, which led me to starting uh, my health food business. And Manitoba Harvest has the claim to fame of helping pioneer the hemp industry globally. Uh, over 20 years, we grew the business to $100 million in sales. And in 2020, it passed to $500 million in lifetime sales with over 16,000 retail partners and millions of happy hemp heart customers. And uh, very fortunate to uh, sell the business uh, twice, uh, the majority in 2015 to private equity and then a a full sale in 2019 to Tilray for $419 million. And now I help other founders uh, to achieve their mission-led companies through uh, investment, advising, mentoring, and board governance. And if we're not already connected there, I am active on LinkedIn, and uh, please reach out. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to have this chat with Ian with you all. Uh, I met Ian at CHFA Expo many years ago uh, and fortunate to make friends with Ian. And we have several industry legend uh, mutual friends like Brian Ben and Richard Pollock and Charles Chang, uh, many of which we are in a Young Presidents Organization or YPO together. I think very highly of Ian and what he's created with Left Coast Naturals and Hippie Snacks, uh, both as a distributor and a brand uh, with 25 years of uh, uh, in business. Um, but I think more importantly is the, uh, the positive vibe. Uh, Ian is a very kind and caring person, and he has been a triple bottom line businessman for a long time uh, and also a fellow B Corp member. So welcome to Natural Product Founders Helping Founders, Ian. Gee, thanks, Mike. I should have you do my intro every time. I like that. Thanks. <laughs> well, you're going to do it better myself. You're going to have this recording. Maybe you can, uh, you can make use of it too. Some... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, do you want, do you want to give us a intro on on you and Left Coast and and Hippie Snacks? Sure. Yeah. Thanks. So uh, yeah, it's been a twenty five year journey. I started what was then called Skeet and Ike's, a, a small peanut butter business in nineteen ninety six, uh, selling product at Granville Island, um, and we evolved. I, I actually did start it with a partner, um, but he was only active for a year or two, um, and then uh, backed away from the business. Um, but we started as a manufacturer making peanut butters. We got into making, um, 
better for you snacks. Uh, our first product was actually a soy nut. So trying to make a soy nut butter and it tasted horrible, but we liked them as a snack and it was an organic product that we could sell for under a dollar. So we thought that was kind of cool. Um, and no one would distribute for us. So within a year or two, we got into distribution and uh, fast forward to today, we um, were a distributor um, actually across Canada. We've now gone national, primarily been in Western Canada up until recently, um, distributing organic and natural food products, um, some of them being our own, some of them being other people's. Um, we're Canada's largest organic bulk distributor. So if you buy organic out of a bin, you're probably buying it from us. Um, and as a brand, uh, we evolved Skeet Nikes into Hippie Snacks in the late 2000s. Um, and that's a better for you snack brand. We are the manufacturer. We make it ourselves. We create the products ourselves and we make products like cauliflower crisps and avocado crisps and grain-free granola and, and all kinds of sort of better for you snacks, um, made from real food. Um, and as Mike said, sort of right from the get go, triple bottom line has been, you know, right at the center of everything. Um, and it's just been kind of foundational to how I wanted to build the business, um, what else can I say? We, uh, as a brand, uh, hippie snacks were sold across North America, primarily Canada and Western U S. Uh, so we're early stage in the U S we can talk about it later, but we did enter the U S in the late nineties and then ran back home with our tail between our legs. Uh, it's a good side story. Um, and what we learned from that shaped with how we went back a few years ago. Um, and uh, we also have a second brand called Left Coast Organics, which is a repacked bulk brand, um, you know, in conjunction with our bulk selling. So, yeah, that gives a fair thing. I live in North Vancouver with uh, my partner, my two kids, her two kids. So there's sort of six of us uh, keeping busy in the outdoors. Uh, I'm a out big outdoors fan, worked as a canoe trip guide, really into the that, – that's partly why I'm so big on sustainability and that I want to kind of preserve that. So yeah, that's me. I appreciate that, Ian. And, um, lots to unpack there. I, I, um, you know, <laughs> I think, well, I think one of them on, on, uh, and you mentioned it kind of in the intro, but, you know, started uh, Skeet Nikes with, uh, with a co-founder, but then, um, you know, you, you went on your own way and, uh, and so it's become a, and, and you have no, um, investors, which I think is a, I know of you, but I think it's good for the audience to know that. So 25 years in, as a, as a family business, but you know, how, how did you, I guess after, you know, maybe it relates to your first uh, experience, the co-founder, but how did you decide that, um, uh, and, and let's do the co-founder piece first, that, uh, uh did you ever think of, uh, of another co-founder or, 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 or why just you as a, as a single founder for the, uh, for the business? Well, you know, first I always want to remind people like I fell into this. So my the fellow I started with, Jason Dorland, he designed the packaging for our original product as a as a graphic design project at Emily Carr. So it started as a school project, and so he pulled me into it and said, "Hey, do you think I can sell this product?" And so as we started doing it, um, he said, "Wow, I, I really don't understand any of this business stuff." So he was an Olympic athlete and an artist, but not really a business guy. And he wasn't really he was kind of reluctant to get into it, but um, enjoyed it. And then he went back and became a teacher. Um, so, but we also, you know, when you're a one employee or two employee band, you can't have one person doing kind of just some demoing and marketing. You got to be doing a whole bunch of stuff, especially when you're manufacturing early on. And he was a great partner. He kind of just stepped back. He actually remained an owner until maybe eight, nine years ago, but just had a small piece. 
Um, but I knew that um, I wanted to grow this in a way that I would feel proud of. And so I, you know, I knew enough to knew I didn't want to be a public business. Um, you know, um, I grew up around family business, right? There was my, my father had a family business. And, and so we, we talked around the kitchen table, you know, that, that prototypical thing, talking about uh, how you treat people and how you want to show up in this world. And, and that, that brainwashed me for good. So I, I always knew I wanted to kind of build it the way that I wanted. And I never aspired to be the biggest. We just wanted to be the best. So it's definitely shaped the way we've grown. You know, in, in many ways, I'm, you know, I'm jealous of the way people like yourself or Charles built their businesses. But in other ways, I'm really happy that I did it kind of my own way, right? We were a bit slower, uh, but we funded all ourselves. It's like we're a profitable business with zero debt, and I'm the only owner. So that's an enviable position, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Well, hey, you can you can look at Charles, you know, Charles and I, similar success, but uh, neither one of us own our business or brand anymore. So there's a lot of grieving, as you know, in that kind of process when you got to gotta let your baby go and you, you still have your baby and she's 25 years old. So compliments, <laughs> compliments to you on, uh, on on that one. You know, I, on um, I guess as a uh, you know, you're you're a distributor and a uh, and a brand. Uh, I guess can you talk through um, and, and maybe it's for for some of the founders in the audience. As a, as a distributor, how do you select uh, products that you're looking to distribute it or categories that you want to focus on? Um, how, how do you guys manage that process? Sure, um, I can talk about more recently because we certainly refined it over the years, but you know, we got into it because no one would distribute for us. But as we did it, we realized we had to be a different distributor. So first, let me explain that as a distributor, our idea is to go deep as opposed to wide. So we, we only represent a small number of brands. So, you know, we try to keep the number under 35. Um, because I knew that anytime I used brokers, and we had more than they had more than 30 or 35 brands, you kind of get lost in the mix. So the idea is, have a few brands, go super deep with them and be like a broker, brand manager, distributor, all rolled into one and kind of kick ass with those brands. So that was our model and we follow that and with that comes hard discipline. So you're right, we definitely have to have discipline around what we carry. So we probably get uh, like three or four brands a day. So you're talking like 900 brands a year that you see and we, we list maybe six a year. And we, when we list six, we usually have to drop four. So it's really about um, having a scoring system. So first, they have to pass through a sustainability scoring system, so like values alignment. Second, they pass through kind of a market assessment. You know, we say no me too brands. You know, I, I don't need a kombucha, thank you. I love kombucha, but I'm not going to list a kombucha because there's already five great brands in the market, and 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 if the brand coming to me doesn't have a reason to believe that stands out so that we can go to the, you know, you got to think of the buyers, right? If we go to the buyers, I want it to be a no brainer. My idea is list a product, go to that retail buyer. And they're like, yeah, of course I should carry this product. Like I should make the job super easy for my sales team. So we, we do that with that lens on and, and we have kind of a procurement team that meets uh, every two weeks and, and, that scores, we have a, like a whole strict scoring system and, and, and anybody can veto a product and et cetera. And I appreciate that. And I mean, like switching over to, as you guys think about uh, your brand on, on the Hippie Snacks brand, you guys have you know innovated some, some cool items and I'd say maybe more cutting edge or even maybe bleeding edge on some of them, just the timing of, you know, putting out 
you know, cauliflower and avocado crisps or snacks, um, um, even before the, uh, before the kind of surge, how do you, uh, how do you plan your, uh, your innovation as it, as it comes to the, uh, to your brand? Yeah, gosh, I could talk about that for hours. Cause that's where I geek out. I love that side of the business. Um, and you're right, right? Like, uh, we actually struggle between that balance between bleeding edge and leading edge because, um, you know, certainly we want to be ahead of things, but we're not trying to get on top of trends. So like, for example, we launched the first coconut chip in, in, in North America and, but it wasn't because we thought coconut was going to be hot. We launched it because we're like, Oh cool. It's a, it's a whole food snack that tastes great and is quite nutrient dense. And it just happened that everyone else kind of figured that out at the same time. So coconut took off. Same with like we'd been we actually have been trying to make an avocado snack for maybe ten years. Like avocado is really hard to make a snack out of, right? It's like high oil content. It 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 goes bitter when you cook it. it it's it's so high in fat that it's hard to get it crispy. So you know we actually gave up. We actually tried for like three years to come up with one and then quit. And and so if we launched it right away, we would have been totally bleeding edge. But then by the time we did launch it, we were at least leading edge. <laughs> but certainly we think about things that we love as a group. We have a whole product um, development committee, just like I talked about on procurement. We have the same thing for our um, product development. And it's about going out there. So for us, we would go visit all of like for the last 20 years. I'm going to Austin. I'm going to, to Colorado. I'm I'm going to Vermont. I'm going to like any place I can to visit small stores, see what kind of inklings of products are out there that haven't quite nailed it, but maybe we could nail it. And so it's, it's, it's like going out to the places that are a bit more leading edge, trying to see what they're doing and, and what you can kind of sense. Like, I think a lot of us are geeks like that. When you go travel, you drive your spouse nuts because you want to walk around the grocery store. Well, that's me. You know, I'm in Vietnam walking around. I'm in Morocco walking around grocery stores. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so cool. I've never had anything like this. Why are we eating this in North America? So, you know, those little things, they all kind of um, show up at some point in time in the product development process. And we do like a quarterly brainstorming session. So we have a wider team of about 12 that that, that bring ideas and, and then we, we, we score them down. And then we work on about three projects at a time. So, yeah, all right. I love that. I think it's a, that's a great sharing and, and I'm a big believer in, uh, uh, you know, most of the answers to, uh, to, to the opportunities and to the problems are at the store shelf, you know, walk in the store and, uh, and, and, and applying a, um, you know, a lot, not a lot of red tape, but some formality to the product development cycle. Uh, even tell young entrepreneurs, just, just have a checklist and, you know, have a, have a thing, you know, and you mentioned some of them, either whether it's through your product selection or, or, or product development for your own brand, but uh, uh, you know, go go through that process formally, even even if it's just even if it's a small team or an independent, even going through it, just so that you uh, you dot all your eyes and cross your t's. I think that's uh, I think that's pretty smart. You know, one thing that I that we learned in the last maybe ten years that was really a good lesson was that difference between bleeding edge and leading edge. So, for example, as we launched Hippie Snacks, we our first product was actually a tortilla chip. We don't sell it anymore. But it was, you know, we took whole whole beans and, and we cooked them down and, and sheeted it into a chip or we, we, we blended almonds and, and turned that into a chip. Like, it was a great product, but we went kind of too far. So then your price point gets killed. 
It's maybe not, uh, it doesn't taste like, you know, Doritos like people are used to. And, and likewise, we got into raw foods. So we, we did a, like a veggie cluster where we took whole veggies and we dehydrate them and kind of put it with like that sauce that you see on like kale chips. And, and it, we made these great garden chip uh, veggie cluster product, but they were kind of almost like on the uh, regular, you know, like on the spectrum, we were too far to the side. We were a bit too bleeding edge. So they were expensive. They weren't in a format people were familiar with. Everyone would admit they were totally innovative, but they maybe went too far. And so we've really kind of worked to dial it back to kind of find that happy medium between being innovative and being approachable, like in a format people are familiar with or a flavor people are familiar with and, and in a price point that people can accept. Because you can get a bit holier than now on food a bit. And, and, and that was a huge lesson for us where we kind of stumbled a bit. Like I feel like that set hippie snacks back a little bit. And, and it was really where we got coconut chips and then the crisps where we really kind of find that happy medium where we had the right price point, the, the right product that, 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 that's approachable, that, that, that's familiar and yet different. So. Yeah. Thanks. You know, at, you're, you've been a manufacturer for a very long time. And I, I know when one of the first times that we, uh, we met, uh, you gave me a tour of the, uh, the manufacturing facility and you know i'm a bullish uh, on manufacturing it's not the only way to go in uh, um in 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 food and cpg but um and especially in some categories the categories that you're in you know snacks and stuff maybe even play um better to a co-manufacturer that from a volume and a scale standpoint but you know why uh, i guess why self-manufacture and and uh, can you kind of talk to us about your your your, your kind of strategy or your thoughts there that maybe benefit uh, others for sure. Um, first, I, I just like the idea of making stuff. <laughs> feels real. So I, I definitely default to to the idea of, of being able to create a product and put it into this world um, and, and actually making it, that sort of tangibleness of it. But the, the problem, like what we, the part of the reason that we're doing it is because really a lot of the products that we come up with, nobody can make. Certainly, at least not recently, because co-packers once in a time, once upon a time, were a bit smaller, a bit more flexible. But they've they've really streamlined and consolidated. So you have like super large chip manufacturers, or super large pellet uh, puff manufacturers, or super large tortilla manufacturers. And so you have to formulate your product and create your product in a way that works in their system and their equipment. And we don't work that way. We come up with a concept and quite often it's something that you can't make without equipment. Like almost everything we make, we've had to MacGyver some equipment to make something else to make this product. So it's actually one of the skill sets that we've learned and that we've built into our team is being able to take a weird concept and figure out how to manufacture it and then how to scale it up. Because a lot of the times they just don't either have the flexibility in their systems and in their equipment or the desire to do that. Um, so we, we kind of fell into it. I mean, there's been times where we've been like, Oh, I wish we can, you know, get this one co-packed. But, um, like for example, in the early years we did use some, like we had, we were the first, actually the first certified organic popcorn in North America with the Skeet Nikes brand. But we ended up going to, I think four different co-packers. I went to the last co-packer of popcorn in Western Canada and then they closed. So then I went to Washington state, then they got bought and they raised their minimums too much for us. So then I went to California they got bought, raised the minimums, couldn't work. So then I went to Wisconsin. Like we just went farther and farther and farther away to try and find the co-packer that could do the work for us. Because 
especially if you're a regional brand, you, you know, you're, you can't do, you know, 15,000 cases at a time. You got to do like, you know, 800 or a thousand. Yeah. I, man, those are great shares. And I think that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of young entrepreneurs wrestle with that, right? The, the minimum order quantities. And then, and then I don't think people, you know, that example there of like three different co-packers, like either closing you down or shutting down your business, that, it happens. It's just as challenging as, you know, a piece of equipment breaking down in your own factory or, or, you know, having labor issues or something, but at least you, you can kind of control it a little bit better. So, um, yeah, I, it, thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that. How are you? I want to, I want to, uh, I want to jump into, you, you said it in your opening remarks, um, you know, being a Canadian brand, uh, when you launched the brand and going into, uh, into the U S and then, and then walking home with your, your tail between your legs, uh, in, in the nineties and then, and then, you know, muscling up a little bit as your now your business, your family business has, has grown considerably and, and going to the U S which I know is still a struggle like it is for kind of any brand launching in the U S but you know, we have, I think a mix of some U S brands, some Canadian brands. So, you know, sometimes it's a U S brand going internationally, but a lot of times it's a Canadian brand saying, Hey, we want to go down to the U S we want to be in whole foods, you know, talk, talk, talk about your experience on, on kind of like the, maybe the first time and then, and then kind of trying to do it right. And still the challenges that, uh, that are faced there and any of your, um, any of your key learnings. For sure. Um, you know, I think first of all, when you start a business, there's such a temptation, you know, not a temptation, there's a, a necessity to get to a scale where you can be profitable. So of course you're, you're a bit panicked to try to find sales and get to the level. Like I do remember being thinking like, Oh, if I can just get to 500,000, I've got it made. You know, of course you get there and you're not, you don't have it made, but um, so you're, 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 you're searching for sales. So we, we found some success in, in Western Canada. And, and so we took soy nuts down to the U S and I know people today won't get this, but Back in those days, I don't know if you remember, but like soy was super hot in the mid '90s, and and we had created this product. It was kind of a cool, funky snack, and 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 it actually really took off. And so we entered we entered the U.S. because there was an opportunity, and you know we we sold really well. Like it 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 would do turns. The problem was that we had no bandwidth. Like there was maybe two of us in the office, and then the production people, and and so we would. Um, it would basically be me like running around doing sales here. And then I'd, I'd, you know, fly down to California, Northern California and do like a four day trip and then fly back and, and hit the stores here and then fly to Colorado and do something and then go back and then go down to LA. Like basically it was just me like as a road warrior. But the big mistake we would take was that we would sell to anybody because we were desperate for sales. So you're like, Oh my God, we got this chain in, 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 you know, Illinois that's interested. So we'll sell to them. And then somebody in Arizona wants it. And, and you weren't picking your, your, your chains for alignment and you, you weren't picking it for density. So, you know, you, you couldn't spend on marketing because you're all over the place. And if you had to try to spend everywhere, then you blow your brains out. And especially at stores where they're not going to do the numbers, even if you do spend. So we, we kind of sold to anybody and everybody. We didn't have the bandwidth and, and the team to be able to support it. We didn't have the, the financial bench strength to kind of get through it. And, and you know what, the tipping point was actually, um, Peter Van Stock, uh, he owns Spud now, but he owned Joe, Jones Soda at the time. He had just started Jones Soda. That makes me really feel old. And we were picking his brain and he's like, listen, Ian, are you kicking ass in your home market? I said, well, we're doing pretty good. He's like, no, no. Are you kicking ass? I was like, well, you know, maybe not. He's like, then what the hell are you doing somewhere else? If you can't destroy it in your own backyard, 
Stop wasting your time trying to sell everywhere else because you're not going to make up the volume. You got to own the space that you're in. You got to do incredibly well and then head to the next one. And I really took it to heart and we said, you know, forget this. Instead of being a weak international player, let's be a strong regional player. So we kind of retreated to BC and played nice in, in Western Canada where we had the relationships and slowly built it back up. And I said, if I go back down, I'm going to go back on my own terms. I'm going to have the right people. I'm going to have financial bench strength. I'm going to have a kick-ass brand that has products that people are like that desperate to have. And so we literally didn't go back for 20 years. We just went back two years ago. And we were like, well, we got this crisp line. It's doing great. Um, it's the right time for it. We've got the financial wherewithal. We've got the team. We've built out finally a marketing team and a sales team. And okay, let's go do this. And 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 that was sort of how we re-entered. But we re-entered with a very disciplined policy, right? We're just going to do Pac Northwest. We're going to do you know down the West Coast, and we're going to create density in the region so that we can put street teams and marketing and 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 we can afford to go deep with our partners that we do choose. And that we only go with retailers that will be really aligned. So I frankly piss off my sales team. They're always like, hey, there's a great opportunity here. I'll be like, too bad. We're, we're selling just in this area. Oh, I love that. I love that. And that's, there's going to be some good uh, sound bites there. I mean, it, it uh, to me, and I, I say it all the time, it's, it's nice to uh, it's nice to hear it, uh, and, and especially from the war stories. Because uh, um, I think entrepreneurs, other founders learn from that, Ian. Like, it's about farming instead of hunting when you're when you're a new when you're a new entrepreneur you're like hunting for it you think i need that three hundred thousand in sales i need that five hundred thousand that million dollars in sales i'm going to hunt and get that uh but you know what what is uh new york and southern california and and seattle all have in common you know maybe they're in the u.s or same can be true for canada same can be true for any country but it's not it doesn't build up the density and i think that d word is is key so that your marketing activities your team your focus area your retail partners it starts to pay off and all the greatest brands in the world started from owning their home market and just dominating there and then, and then expanding out. Uh, um, and, and I'm a big believer that, you know, expanding out is like traveling the farther away from home you travel, the less you take with you and, and, and the more resources you bring, you know, you, you have to, uh, to back up your trips. And, yeah. yeah, it's funny. Uh, Ve- uh, Vega had a, I have to paraphrase uh, Charles on this, but Vega had a good, I think they called it the hug principle or something where like, you know, if you have a great relationship in an area, you're getting hugs from the buyer. And so, like, I remember it really dawned upon me that I should leave the U.S. when I'm down at, like, Expo West and, like, the California companies around me, like, the buyer comes up and they're getting a huge hug and then, like, they're barely saying hi to me. Like, I'm lucky if I get it. But then I'd go to CHFA here in Vancouver and, like, they're giving me high fives and hugs and we're going for drinks. And so you have to build that hug factor into each region you go into. Love that. I haven't heard that before from Charles, but I, I like that one. Uh, the, uh, the hug factor—it's—it's it, it, it's so true. You know, you got to—you uh, got—you you, got to farm those relationships. Make friends first, do business second, over and over again, closer to home, build that regional density, and then expand from there. So awesome! That's totally well. Awesome. That's what I like. Even from afar, I'd always admire you on that side. I go down there, and there you are sitting out front with music blaring in front of the tent at uh, Expo West, high five and everybody. I'm like, okay, Mike's doing this right. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to say that, you know, we, we, we put a lot of effort. I mean, my my family is from California. I have so many friends from California. As an entrepreneur, as soon as we had stability in Canada, and there was three co-founders, so I had the ability to do it. But uh, I spent uh, a good 15, 20 days a month uh, for years in California, sleeping on friends' couches, 
doing demos in stores, doing trainees in stores, meeting the people, making friends. And, and, you know, at Expo West, it was, you know, everyone coming together. And then, and then we started to uh, spend some money and throw a parties and events when, uh, when we became more successful, but uh, it does work, you know, and, and you know what? I was jealous for a long time that I wasn't from Southern California when all my, when many of my friends were, but, but that was the reality of it, you know? And so you still got to pick your home market and uh, uh, that is the right approach. Hey, um, I want to talk about uh, uh, maybe one more area and then we'll, we'll get into, uh, we'll get into founder questions. Uh, so if you, if you have a question, uh, get, get yourself ready, but I, I would like to hear from you. I know it's, you know, Ian, you, you, you've been into, um, you know, you've been into the triple bottom line approach to business well before it was cool, well before it was even cutting edge. It was definitely bleeding edge. Um, what's some of the learnings, I guess, there of like why, uh, aside, you know, t- tell us about your experience, I guess, in, in, uh, in ESG or triple bottom line in business and, and, uh, and even as a, as a B Corp. For sure. Thanks. Um, I mean, I knew that when I founded that we wanted this to be based in I don't even, we probably called it environmentalism at the time because sustainability wasn't as much a word in those days. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, it's all about an evolution, right? You, when I first started, I didn't even know what organic was. So, you know, Jason, my partner, taught me what that was and it immediately resonated with me. So when we first started, it was all about the product. How do we do an organic product that's clean ingredients and that, um, and then we'd look at how could we quote unquote green our business. So, you know, you're looking at minimizing waste and, and, minimizing packaging and using all, you know, alternative, um, like on your energy source and, and, and all that kind of thing. But the biggest aha moment for me was realizing, you know, that it was a triple bottom line and that sustainability, there was the whole social pillar. So we focused really hard on the kind of environmental pillar around that impact. And, but we also, you know, started to learn about, okay, it is also how you, treat and how you work with your customers, your suppliers, the whole ecosystem that you're in and, and all those stakeholders. And, and because, you know, that's how you show up in society and you can have societal impact by doing the right thing and being a leader that way. So that was kind of a first one. The second one was when we did our first um, uh, scope three uh, impact analysis Um and when we did that, we were quite amazed, you know, because we were doing all these greenings and I was like, well, okay, we're, we're trying to green our supply chain or do this or that. But, you know, are we actually using math to figure out where we should emphasize? Like we could do 12 things. How do we choose which one we do? So let's see what actually has impact. And we did when we did that, 55% of our footprint was how the food was actually grown. 25% was trucking. 3% was packaging. So, you know, we immediately stopped focusing on packaging and started focusing on everything from irrigation practices at the farms to riparian area protection to tillage practices. All of a sudden we started caring about these things that nobody really knew anything about. And so like we, we paid a, a researcher to do a white paper to figure out like what had the most impact within the growing cycle. And, and so we created a score sheet and, and started scoring our farmers on it and and but it's like we almost never talked about it we just kind of did it because it was the right thing which was now coming up was our third lesson which was um i noticed that a lot of companies either do the right thing or they talk about doing the right thing they're not great at doing both and so we were always doing the right thing and always trying to do stuff but 
uh, as I said, I'm fairly low key. I'm not trying to kind of like say, hey, look at me, look at what we're doing. But at the same time, we'd gotten, we just started a marketing department. Like I didn't have a marketing department until whatever, 10, 15 years ago. And as we got it, they're like, you idiot, you're doing all kinds of incredible stuff that could inspire people and that could, you know, that, you know, could help the brand. You need to talk about this stuff. And that was around the same time that we became a B Corp. We were a founding Canadian B Corp because I said, listen, I don't want to talk about this because I really don't want to be, you know, accused of greenwashing, right? It really bothers me when people, you know, talk about stuff and, you know, talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. So when we looked around, B Corp was the one that popped out as, as a good third party kind of credibility to what we're doing. Um, I said, listen, if we're going to talk about it, let's at least be able to point to a third party and say, you know, these guys took a look at us. They took a look under the hood and we're actually doing what we say we're doing. So that, that was another piece of it was trying to make sure that we, we had that third party uh, authenticity um, around it. And then the other part is just really around trying to make sure that you know, while I'm excited about it, you want to have all your team excited about it. So you have to have a whole bunch of champions throughout the business that are going to kind of lead things. So we have a, a couple great people, which means it kind of comes off my shoulders. Um, I'm cheering them on and, and, and like excited when they bring things to the front. Um, but you know, it, it's interesting. It can be a bit, um, it is easy to get a bit disheartened in this space because whenever we go and do, um, focus groups and, 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 and quantitative research, you know, about what are the buying criteria that matter to consumers. I do always get a bit heart disheartened in that sustainability doesn't jump to the top or even if it does, they don't put their money where their mouth is. So I, I more have come to the conclusion that it's something that we do because it's important and that we want to talk about it and we'll maybe let the market catch up with us on it. I think it has in many ways, certainly from where we started because we were the weirdos and now we're a bit more normal. But um, is it our lead thing for our brand? Probably not. Is it the thing I care about the most? Probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, a couple things really resonated there with me. And I think, you know, similar, you know, we've had, you know, Mantle Harvest was doing triple bottom line for the whole time we were in business. So 20, 22 years, some, around the same time. I struggled as an entrepreneur with some of the same stuff as is like, hey, we're doing these things, but is that is that good enough or 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 you know, do 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 we are we are we trying to uphold ourselves? I always thought to like Patagonia or something, and there's lots of different levels in between, right? That build social and environmental responsibility. And it's really about having a program, identifying with it, um, taking action measuring and then and then and then continuous improvement you know trying to do a little bit better tomorrow and, and the next next year and so on with uh, with your team so you know I, I i think that b corp anyone that's kind of considering it is a good step uh, program for that i've been uh, you know proudly sponsoring b corp for a, a long time promoting it because i think that uh, many companies can just be better companies um with with following a process thinking about uh, what their environmental and social impact is and uh, and now it's becoming popular and i think uh, you know it's popular right now i think the future is that uh, um that consumers aren't going to buy the products if you're if you're not a, a triple bottom line or whatever the terminology social and environmental responsibility or b corp or benefit corp whatever whatever that term is used it's kind of it's just going to get stronger and stronger like, um, you know, plant-based has uh, uh, for kind of the way of eating. So. Well, that was part of the reason why I did it was because I I, uh, I felt like um, there is, there's so many kind of like made up green stamps on packaging that I said, hey, if I can get behind one that is credible 
and, and I can be kind of one more brand that has that on my package and I can kind of convince a whole bunch of buddies to put it on their packaging or then, then maybe eventually it'll kind of become the standard. And at least it's not some fake made up CPG, uh, green wise stamp. It's an actual legitimate thing. And, and so partly I was more doing it in service to, to, to the consumers to try to make sure they had something they could trust. Thank you for listening to the founder to mentor podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out the links and resources in the show notes. You can help the show, please, by subscribing and leaving a positive review. As always, feel free to get in touch with me on social at Mike Fata. That's it for now. See you next time.